Welcome to this special edition of Free Thoughts. My name is John Samples. I'm vice president at the Cato Institute. James Madison Jr. was born on March 16, 1751, 269 years ago. Uh, and he was an American statesman and a founding father who served as the fourth president of the United States from 1809 to 1817. He is hailed as the father of the Constitution for his pivotal role in drafting and promoting the United States Constitution. He was a member of the Constitutional Convention and took the notes on its uh, activities that continue to uh, our day to inform say, the Supreme Court or citizens' interpretation of the Constitution. He also drafted the United States Bill of Rights. His last amendment finally became part of the Constitution on May 7, 1992, that is when Bill Clinton was running for president, after having been rejected in the late uh, in the early 1790s. Madison also co-wrote the Federalist Papers. Federalist 10, among others, is considered one of the major works of political theory that the United States has produced. He co-founded the Democratic Republican Party, which we can discuss whether what kind of forerunner is, it, it is to one of our parties today. And he served as the fifth United States Secretary of State from 1801 to 1809. Today, I will be discussing Madison with Michael B. Levy, who holds a PhD in political theory and who has for more than 30 years worked in and around Congress and also held high executive office. Also, we will be talking with Gene Healy, Vice President at the Cato Institute, who has written widely on executive power, including his book, The Cult of the Presidency. And now the the uh, writing the indispensable remedy, subtitled "The Broad Scope of the Constitution's Impeachment Power." Welcome, gentlemen, to the Cato Institute. Mike Madison was a legislator and a pretty good one. Uh, you've had a lot of experience with Congress. What would Madison say about our current Congress and all, everything that goes with it, and what people say about it? Well, he was a politician. He was a theorist. He was a statesman. And he was, of course, a member of the legislature. And uh, I think he would probably, like all legislators, say something different <laughs> when he needed to say something different. But in general, I think he would say a couple of things, and they, they may not seem consistent, but I think they are. I think the first thing he would say is we did a pretty good job in creating a system of separations of powers and checks and balances. And uh, many of the things I was most frightened of that we would have a demagogue that would arise into power, a sort of a, a, a populist monarch. We've solved some of those problems and on some of those occasions stopped it. We've stopped some of the worst local movements from becoming national movements, and we've done a pretty good job of protecting individual rights, both of property and of, of religious liberty and of speech. And the Congress has played its role in all of that. Uh, I think he would say he's a little surprised that they give away some of their constitutional authority. Uh, perhaps it would be an interesting thing to look at war powers. But as I said, he's a statesman and he spent a lot of time in his life uh, seeing erosions of that even in his own lifetime and then participating in it to some extent when in the War of 1812. Um, so I, I think he would he would be pleased. I, th I, th I think the other thing he would have to comment on and he began to see this in his own life, of course, is that the the representation of place, you know, I'm from the such and such district of so and so, and that's who I've come here to represent, has in many ways eroded. And you have more and more people who see themselves as members of the Republican Party or members of the Democratic Party. And their first thought is toward their primary election in their state and not necessarily the interests that uh, define their their state or their region. Now, I don't want to overstate that position because I, I just have overstated it. But I think while he did see the evolution of parties and himself was instrumental, as you said, in founding one of the parties, I think he would probably be a little, if not surprised, I think he would be a little uh, at least cognizant of the fact that what he describes in the Federalist Papers and what actually goes on on a day-to-day -day basis in the contemporary Congress are a little bit different. Gene, uh, on the presidency, uh, you've written a lot about it. Uh, what do you think Madison would think about the presidency? I, I remember um, what Mike just said reminded me one time you said to me, you know, 
we would go and talk to members or we would give Gene would give testimony about the war powers. And I remember Gene saying, it's so weird. We always have to go up there trying to get them to do their job. That's clear and try to get them to exercise their power. They're like Madison was expected them to be. That wasn't going to be a problem. Exercising power. The problem was stopping them from doing that. Right. What do, you th- what do you think about the presidency? And particularly, you've just written on impeachment. Was Madison, how would he think we're talking impeachment now? And we have been throughout much of our adult lives at various times. What would you think about that? Well, you know, Madison was concerned that uh, you know, the legislature was uh, was where the danger was principally, you know, uh, drawing all power into its impetuous vortex, uh, which seems kind of quaint today. Uh, given where we are uh, with the powers uh, that have accrued to the presidency. But he was also uh, – he, w- he was – he wasn't uh, – he, w- he was cognizant of the risks that the presidency could uh, present. He wasn't uh, naive to that. Um, the uh, – my paper on uh, impeachment, uh, Indispensable Remedy, the title uh, is from – you know, it's an adjective that both Madison and Mason used to describe the remedy of impeachment. And I structure a lot of the paper around uh, what Madison said at the convention. Uh, he said it was indispensable. The, the re- being able to remove the president uh, midterm was indispensable, uh, you know, for, among other things, the incapacity, negligence, or perfidy of the chief magistrate, and I structure a lot of the paper around that. Uh, he wanted uh, – he, he interpreted uh, what came out of the Constitution, eventually high crimes and misdemeanors per Mason. Uh, he interpreted that pretty interpreted that pretty broadly, and uh, unlike uh, – there, there's a contemporary argument where you have to be especially wary of uh, presidential impeachments because – there's only one man in the office. You know, you get rid of uh, a federal judge. We've got hundreds of other federal judges who can step in. Uh, but it's particularly weighty when it comes to this office that is uh, at the top is one single man. Ma- Madison actually thought that the dangers uh, from the singularity of the office cut the other way. He, he At the convention, he says that, um, you know, Incapacity or uh, corruption in uh, other branches is not as concerning. You can't assume that everybody in Congress is uh, is going to lose their capacity or be bribed at once, and you can't assume that the whole judiciary is going to go bad. But uh, he says that the presidency is is o- occupied by a single man, and uh, malfeasance in that office could be quote fatal to the republic. Uh, so he definitely saw impeachment as a key remedy. And uh, given his concern about uh, the concentration of war powers, uh, you know, uh, his uh, statements to the effect that uh, the, the, there's no danger to public li- liberty as grand as, uh, as in war, in part because of the concentration of power in the executive – I think he would be well after he got over being uh, catatonic and, uh, and flabbergasted by smartphones and cars. Uh, when he got around to looking at uh, government, uh, the way the federal government operates, I think he would be quite concerned about the way in which, uh, particularly after nine eleven, uh, war has become a permanent backdrop of. The conduct of federal affairs. It's no longer a departure from a baseline of peace. It's the new norm. But it, uh, just as a aside, I mean, uh, yes, I think I would agree with all of that. But Madison was gen- generally is viewed as uh, being a depending of a poor to average president, but a superior kind of. Uh, Constitution writer and also a superior legislator, and he did, he did seem to have the sort of spirit of the legislator, and he thought legislators were very important. Is, is that a fair thing historically? You think was he that poor a president? Well, I, I, you know, to, to some extent, I'll defer to Gene, but I think he was a, a better president than he's given credit for. He's uh, often 
seen as a bumbling president because of the way he began the War of 1812. Mm. And, uh, and, and it's interesting, given our conversation, in part that's because he relied heavily on militias, didn't want to use a standing government, government was reluctant to build a strong navy, and um, uh, he himself was a, a member of the militia. His father was a member of the militia. I thought he, I think he believes that was an important part of being a Republican citizen, mm-hmm. of having the spirit of liberty in your soul, uh, and and so I think he took some of that for granted. And I think he also was terrified a large standing army with a strong executive would be something like a, a European tyrant. But what he found over time, and this to his credit, he needed more disciplined organized troops that wouldn't go home to plow fields and and wouldn't care more about uh, what the the interests of Michigan were versus the interests of the United States or, you know, wherever, because he was going into Canada at one point of the war on the the, above Detroit. And 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 I think so. I think in the end, he's a consequential president in part because of the his evolution and the country's evolution over time. Uh, not a great president, but he is a great American and a great American thinker, and he confronts all of the great issues of our day. And, and I would say someone like Jimmy Carter, he's an interesting post-president. You know, I actually looked this up uh, before uh, before we got started uh, to see where Madison was in the historical rankings. And I, I my, what I recalled, it was somewhere in the top half in these surveys they give to uh uh you know political scientists and historians uh those surveys are usually a, a very poor guide to who was a good president in terms of uh you know some of the things we care about at Cato <laughs> that's right uh but uh he's on the 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 latest uh serious one the uh American Political Science Association survey from last year, Madison clocks in at number 12, which, uh, you know, I agree he wasn't, he, he wasn't one of our worst presidents, but this does make you think that uh, these surveys, even among scholars, have more to do with celebrity than actual achievement. I mean, after all, the White House and the Capitol get set on fire in uh, Madison's term, so which is not something that I, so so it does seem to be the historical reputation and the ranking as president does seem to be borrowing some from his uh reputation as a legislator and a constitution maker that reminds me of something i was thinking about uh, federalist 10 in congress when mike was uh, speaking before if you look at that uh federalist 10 and his plans to sort of make popular government work there's a real strong uh, sense that he believed in elites. Remember, the the whole point of Federalist 10 is to say direct demo- – he's trying to argue against direct democracy because that's what people think of when they think about republicanism, right? So he's saying have these institutions and you can refine the people's will and it will work out better rather than direct voting because that's caused all kinds of problems in various places at various times. But that's a – That sort of fits to our world today where you have this strong sense that our elites are very much in a bad odor. They've caused all the problems and the Madisonian ideal that they could somehow be anything other than the enemy of the people is really kind of out of uh, our attention at this point. It's something people aren't really buying, right? But Madison, it's very much the the representative and the person in Congress or any kind of indirect voting. He approves of all these kinds of indirect voting. He he says electing the president is an indirect vote and that's a good thing, right? Uh, so in a sense, isn't Madison a man of another era? He's a – you could say pre-Andrew Jackson or you could say, you know, he's like a founding father. They were too elitist. We've become a different country now. What do you think? Well, you could say that. You could say anything, Mike. <laughs> That's true. And uh, you would be right to some extent. He was not a thoroughgoing egalitarian. Uh, he wouldn't uh, satisfy certain people's standards without a doubt. But uh, the, the fact of the matter is that I think Madison trusts nobody. It's not that he trusts elites and he distrusts masses. He trusts nobody. He's afraid that an undifferentiated mass will be occasionally uh, mob-like and will want to take the 
property and just desserts of hardworking people and destroy them. And you know, in Federalist 10, he talks about one of the examples is a rage for, for paper money. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's terrified of that. He's seen it already mm-hmm. in, in, during the Articles of Confederation. Uh, he believes that if you give too much power and authority to the wealthy, they will abuse people who don't have property or who have little bits of property. If you get too much power to the landed, they'll abuse people who are moving into the commercial areas. So I think he is, in many ways, a pre-Jacksonian who over time, later in life, becomes much more of a Jacksonian. By that, I mean he's quite interested in expanding the suffrage and of getting people who have little bits of property the right to vote, at least to vote for the House of Representatives or to vote for the legislative bodies in their states, and ultimately uh, to get as broad a suffrage as he thinks is plausible. So he toys actually with universal manhood suffrage later in his life. At the, at the convention, his notes suggest that he's more interested in that for the states than he is for the House of Representatives. But even in the House of Representatives, he's very interested in a very broad suffrage and he thinks if you have a you know a small bit of property that will qualify you for that vote and so he does he has sort of a we talk about a system of checks and balance and separation of powers but i think he also has a system of maybe filtration where you sort of as you go up and up and up the the masses speak one way and then indirect voting sort of they 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 cool the, the saucer that cools the cup kind of thing that you hear mm-hmm. often described for the for the senate um, so I think Madison is, tr- is in many ways trying to take the mixed government of the British, the monarchy, the aristocracy, and, and the commons, and the commons member don't have anything close to universal manhood suffrage, and to make that a more egalitarian version in the United States with no hereditary power. So I think to underestimate his both his egalitarianism and his majoritarianism is wrong, but he's not his his instincts aren't modern in that regard. Well, this reminds me of something I was reading for this in Federalist 39 to go back to the impeachment. He really treats impeachment in Federalist 39 as a kind of uh, Republican institution in that it holds uh, office holders accountable. So he's, there's nothing of him uh, to go to your point is – the, of like the president is this person that is free and able to carry out uh, whatever some great good is, right? Uh, it's part of the Republican nature of the new constitution, which he believes it has to be Republican. It's not arist- uh, an aristocracy. It's not a monarchy. It has to be Republican. The impeachment is part of that and he's he's keen to show – that you know the new government is going to do better than actually the states do because some of the states don't have means of impeaching their governors. Uh, so I think that goes to that question. Yeah, he's trying to figure out how you can have sort of elite, uh, an important role for elites that make things better. Though that's the and so maybe it's the difference between now everyone this general view that elites always make things a lot worse, right? And his view that it could be different. You could actually. Design the. He's an institutionalist. You design the system to so people's incentives lead you to good conclusions. I think that's his goal. Too. I mean, he talks about ambition counteracting ambition. He doesn't talk about uh, virtue and enlightenment, even though he does elsewhere talk about those things a little bit. And I'm sure you want to talk about that. But he's really quite uh, cynical that you can ever. Um, give power to someone and they will over a long period of time exercise it beautifully in in, in the public's interest. So you have to constantly make sure every interest is reasonably represented and and, and then uh, let them go at it more or less. Which is kind of weird because there was one person, I I would argue, that actually comes close to that, which was Washington himself. I mean, to me, it's completely inexplicable that Washington doesn't go the way of all flesh and become uh, a Caesar, right? Because Washington is a, a thoroughgoing Republican. So Cincinnatus is the model, right? The the Roman who goes back to farm and that's what Washington does. He says two terms. It's not in the Constitution. doesn't come into an amendment form much, much later and after Franklin Roosevelt and uh, after Harry Truman. So he's, he's, he voluntarily leaves – and he sets the precedent that this is a rotating office in essence. And uh, and he does so because of his Republican values and his sense of civic virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that the part about impeachment and the Republicanism? Is that your sense too, Gene, that he's – that's basically uh, pretty important for him? It's part of the uh, 
Republican nature of the institution, which would really, I mean, we're sort of treating it like you know, we've got to kind of like a, you know, a special move we've got to make to go outside the Constitution. And the idea in 30, Federalist Paper 39 seems to be, oh, this is part of the story. This is part of the way you constrain rulers, and it's also the part of the way you have popular government. Yeah. Uh you know the the framers, uh, Madison included, were not nearly as angsty about the possibility of impeachment as we've grown over the years. And ironically, as the presidency has become more and more powerful, uh, we've sort of enshrined it with more and more protections, including uh, this cultural superstition surrounding impeachment that it's a patricide, it's a, a you know just one of the most awful and soul-wrenching things you can engage in. Uh, they, they didn't want it used uh, cavalierly, but uh, Madison, uh, you know, Madison often gets cited, uh, the exchange he has with Mason, that the uh, constitutional language in Article 2, Section 4, High Crimes and Misdemeanors comes out. Uh, Madison gets cited because of this exchange uh, where he objected to Mason's um, a, a addition of maladministration to to the uh, proposed causes of impeachment. Madison gets cited as somebody who's a an impeachment skeptic, and I think that's wrong. Uh, you know, both at the convention and later on uh, in the uh, in the first Congress, when there's a historic debate about you know the removal power uh, to the president to only be able to remove cabinet officers by the same means with which they're appointed or should he be able to just fire a cabinet officer. Uh, during that debate, uh, you know, the objection is raised, well, you know, what if he, the president goes around getting rid of good people and, uh, uh, you know, just wantonly and Madison says, well, if he does that, the, he could be impeached for such an act of maladministration, a, the wanton removal of meritorious officers. So that's a you know pretty broad view of the impeachment power. He fires somebody that's good. He can he can be turfed out. There's another aspect of this, which is I think of Madison. I think of the legislator and the Constitution uh, person. But well, by the way, a brilliant sort of guy, right? He, three years before the Constitution, he, he is he sees it coming. He goes and studies, gets ready for it. He's and he gets there early. He's just it's like total strategic genius, right? I'm going to become famous here, folks. I see my my uh, option. But I, you know, he was a legislator, and I think he expected, and many of them expected from Congress that these guys would be. You know, they would have a sense of the congressional role in Congress's place, and it might actually be the dominant role. They might feel themselves that way. And the thing I notice is, like, uh, take the Libya thing we, that uh, Gene and I talked a lot about at the time, is that and the War Powers Resolution. I mean, you talk about it in the Obama administration. In the Obama administration, <clears throat> but you could talk about any number of these kinds of things in the last fifty years or so. You don't. You don't sense this business about ambition uh, being against ambition, branch against branch and fighting it out. You, you sense that Congress like doesn't have a strong – members of Congress don't have a strong view of themselves as like, I'm a member of Congress and damn it, I'm not going to put up with this. You, you have a sense that they – ah, that's too much responsibility. What do you think about it? Is this wrong or do you think they have a – Well, I think you're partially right. I think without a doubt, they often want to get it off their hands and they'd rather the, the executive do it. You really saw that during the debate over whether we should in, in, intervene in Syria or not. The Congress was like, I don't want to do this. You know, you guys are – you know, and they would just go and engage in demagogic speeches on all sides and talk about Benghazi or something rather than confront what was their responsibility. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting as over time there is uh, – an evolution of the president's war-making powers. And I, I would add that there's an evolution of when wars end and when there is peace. Uh, but Madison saw it in his own time. So, you know, Jefferson takes on the Barbary power, the pirates. Yeah. And that's the, that's the precedence that's used by Truman in Korea to uh, call it a police action and, and avoid a declaration. And uh, Congress does step in and create the War Powers Act. And the War Powers Act purposefully gives uh, the president a, a certain amount of time because unlike in Madison or Jefferson's time or Washington's time, 
you know, we don't have a buffer of oceans against powerful countries. We have, we have troops in Europe. We have troops uh, that we have to get to the to the um, to the Far East. Uh, we have uh, we have you know emergency things in Taiwan and places like that. You know, during uh, you're in, saying, in we, have an we're saying we have well, an we empire. Well, we have far flung interests. <laughs> that we might argue it's an empire. We might yeah. argue that we're defending freedom everywhere. Maybe both, but whatever it is. Um, you don't have necessarily a week to debate these things sometimes. And more importantly, perhaps, your adversaries have to know that you can react immediately, that if a tripwire hits in Europe against NATO, we're automatically in. If there's a tripwire in the Straits of Taiwan, we're automatically in. And and that may help keep the peace. So regardless of whether you think that's a good idea or a bad idea, Congress itself is now evolving to a different situation. And, and perhaps the analogy of, of, of their time was how do you respond to Indians? Because we were in a, you know, a long, many hundreds year war against Indians. And we don't like to describe it that way because Native Americans are our citizens. But at the time, it wasn't viewed that way. And they weren't citizens. And we were at the time of the Constitution, there, there were Indian wars being fought on, on southern borders and western borders. So um, I... I think that, the, that that was usually responded to by local militias rather than the federal government. So the federal government has to all of a sudden deal with over time uh, the fact that we have shrinking protection from the oceans. And I think these are decisions that are made over a long period of time. The erosion is not immediate. I mean, Gene knows this stuff much better than I do, so I, I would defer to him. But, but I, I do think that it's not illogical. But what happens if you're not a, a, an active citizen, you're a weak citizen, Congress has lost its chops. There has been a movement, a much stronger movement away from Congress and away from the states than Madison would have expected and toward the courts and toward yeah. – uh, but I, I would – yeah, go on. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds and too far from Madison, but uh, that's not how I read the War Powers Resolution. Uh I mean, it has been used on occasion to make the claim that it gives the president a 60-day pass – uh, to wage war. Uh, that's not even what the Office of Legal Counsel has said in supporting presidential wars. And the resolution itself, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, it, like anything with legislative history, you, people had different intentions and uh, goals in voting for it. But the resolution itself may have been a mistake because it sets up that, uh, that claim, but it uh, – you know, it specifically says it doesn't give the president any power he doesn't already have by constitution or statute, and it lists the causes for uh, the for uh, waging war without Congress, and and they're pretty limited. Uh, so, uh, the idea that uh, you know the War Powers Resolution was in essence designed to empower uh, Panamas and Libyas and Kosovos. Uh, I don't think is consistent with the text. But I, I think it does point up how uh, in many ways, at least in the 20th and 21st century, what uh, Madison envisioned as sort of a self-executing uh, architecture where uh, the interests of the man are connected to the constitutional rights of the place and everybody in each branch has the incentive to uh, – you're not depending on their goodwill. Uh, they have an incentive to uh, to guard their turf from encroachments by the other branches. It's worked out really well for the presidency because uh, I think the incentives really do want, line up there. The uh, presidents want to leave the office at least as strong as they found it. They have an interest while they're in office in doing that. But uh, Congress, individual Congress people uh, – have a main interest in getting reelected, and it's pretty rare that we uh, punish anybody who, uh, you know, nobody lost their seat over drafting, over signing on to too broad a resolution three days after September 11th. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you did have a couple of, in 2004, a couple of Democratic senators who'd voted for the Iraq War resolution, uh, and in 2008, you know, had some difficulty explaining their votes. But in general, we don't punish uh, legislators who uh, punt the big questions of war and peace and the laws we live under. And I think that is possibly a flaw in uh, the Madisonian design.
Well, let me give you another example that Mike will know a lot more about than I do. But it seemed to me as an outsider, this was what happened. And I'm talking about the financial crisis of 2008. I was was an outsider at the time, thank God. As you recall, the uh, um, Congress was called upon to provide money for bailing out the banks. And it was a this was right at the end of September, early October. Of course, it was a crisis atmosphere. And uh, that uh, had a very hard time getting them to, to vote for that. And they finally came up with the votes after about a week and several failures and about three. three right, several failures. Yeah. yeah. Several weeks before, the, it was about a month before election day. But what they ultimately ended up with beyond that was, uh, you know, they delegated a lot of authority. A lot of it was to the Fed and to. And I was stunned in reading it uh, back as you went on down through November and December to find that members of Congress were actually uh, ended up kind of playing lobbyists trying to affect the distribution of the money with the treasury rather than uh, acting as people who were appropriators and taking responsibility for that. And so you had this sort of flipping of the responsibilities where treasury, including uh, Bernanke and Treasury Secretary were willing to take uh, the responsibility, but uh, they also took the power too. And it had this sort of basic uh, congressional power of appropriation had been given away, kind of delegated, and then they came back and you you run on saying, well, I got so much money to bail out the banks in my district, which was kind of a lobbyist for your district with a third branch of government. It seemed like now, you can argue that all of this was kind of, or maybe it all should have been done by the Fed. It was ultimately almost all done by the Fed anyway. But it seemed like a bizarre, you put the whole system under pressure and you end up finding that it's perverted at those levels, the the distribution of powers. Well, that wasn't the first time. The, the precedent for that was the Resolution Trust Corporation, which uh, where I was, I came in in the mop-up action. I was in the Clinton administration. Bush had in, initiated it. We did the last part. And what was fascinating there to speak of uh, Congress was that congressmen would vote for the reappropriation of the money. The, the RTC would then figure out what to do with it. Right. But once banks or savings and loans in this case were went under resolution in specific districts, the members would vote against it the next time. Hmm. And you'd say, but congressman, you voted. You know, we still have a third of the job left to do and you voted for it last time. Why are you voting against it now? I said, well, that was then and this is now. And the banks in my district are, have gone under resolution and it's politically unpopular, so now I'm going to vote against it. And I think you know, if, if that is, uh, I think, uh, uh, to put it mildly, self-interested. But <laughs> one of the problems when you create a mechanism, mechanistic system, and I support it, but it's a mechanistic system that assumes everyone's self-interested. It doesn't demand that they be something other than self-interested. Well, that brings me to another point that seems uh, that you've nicely shown is not as abstract as I thought it was, which which is that, you know, Madison and uh, is and his generation are really they have a sense of what republicanism, what a democratic, what we would call a democratic government, a government of the people is, and they're they're thinking about Italian city states or they're t- thinking about the Greek small direct democracies, right? And they're also thinking that one of those uh, attributes of those uh, early democracies is that. You know, Aristotle and to a certain extent, Plato's telling you, you got for people to make this work, there's got to be a lot of civic virtue. These people have to be restrained or they have to be devoted to the common good or various kinds of ideas like this, right? And they're looking at the United States in 1789 and saying, you know, it's a gigantic thing of 13 colonies already and it's going to get bigger probably and you really can't, you got to have a monarchy, not a and if you try to set up a republic, it'll just break down really quickly. So Madison's answer to that is the instant, the size of the, the thing works for its good. You split up the majorities that might be tyrannical, but also it's an institutional. You design the uh, constitution in such a way as to get the incentives right. And it does sound like, as you say, uh, one interpretation is it's purely mechanical. He's totally going by the boards. He says, we don't need morality. We don't need civic virtue. We can, through this enlightenment idea, we can design the institution in such a way as the thing will work without civic virtue because you can't count on that. People sort of, you know, too self-interested or whatever. Um, is that true about Madison? Is he, is he saying sort of like people are devils, but look, you could get the institutions in such a way that you'll end up 
not only raising GNP and your uh, the you know you get greed is good in that sense, and then on the other side, it's okay also in politics. Is that his position, and is it actually a false position? You need some kind of civic virtue from folks. So I don't think it's his position. I think his position is probably a little closer to what I think is the right position on this question. But Madison, without a doubt, is not uh, obsessed with virtue. Typically, theorists of republicanism, even even in the early republic, uh, Gordon Wood wrote a wonderful book called The Creation of the American Republic, and he has a whole chapter uh, on Christian Sparta. And he talks about the ideal of having a small Spartan-like city-state of, of religious people and so on and so forth. Madison uh, and knows that literature. He knows that the ideal is the yeoman farmer and the uh, who farms his own land. It's it's a he. He has a, a family, but it's the, the male head of household. He participates in the militia. He gives himself over to the common good as a citizen in local government, and he learns public spiritedness through that. And Madison realizes a couple of things. First of all, it doesn't always work that way. He's now been around government too long. And he sees that, in fact, in smaller republics, the states, you can have factions that come to power very quickly and are very destructive. Mm. In addition to that, and this is an interesting thing about Madison that's not talked about much. Madison uh, lives in a county uh, where there are a lot of Baptists, and he always gets the Baptist vote. So he becomes a huge um, defender of separation of church and state in some broad sense, at least freedom of religion, and against the establishment church as a, as a monopoly church. And on, in addition to that, he's read Montesquieu, who's spent a lot of time talking about these issues. Montesquieu grapples with what is the commercial republic as opposed to the agricultural republic. He's been to Princeton. He studied with Witherspoon, who's a student of Adam Smith. So he knows that we are dramatically changing as a civilization and a society, and we're moving toward a commercial republic, which is going to multiply interests. Everybody's not going to be a farmer with the same crop. So we're going to have multiple competing interests. So the stuff of our republic is going to be different. And so it's not that we don't need people who are public-spirited. You used the example of Washington. What could be, who could be better? It's not that wise men aren't important. Mm -hmm. It's not that we don't want to cull out sort of nature's aristocrats and, as much as possible, use them in government because they'll be other interested and, and uh, care about the common good. It's that we can't depend on that always being what right. governs us. And a, a dependence on that and a dependence only on if something like socialization or education or character building would be a huge mistake. We would lose the republic before we got uh, very far along. So there's a quote here that I came across again. That was uh, This is from The Federalist in 1788. Madison writes, um, there is a degree of depravity in mankind which requires a certain degree of circumspection and distrust. So there are also other qualities in human nature which justify a certain portion of esteem and confidence. Republican government presupposes the existence of these qualities, that is, the virtuous qualities, in higher degree than any other form. And then he goes on to say, if the, if you did not have this virtue among men, they could not have self-government. There has to be some level. So he's not a, you know, a complete uh, cynic or say, or a Hobbesian that's working. Uh, he sees both sides here. And I think that's sort of what makes him kind of Less of a famous political theorist. Famous political theorists usually take one side of it and put Hobbes, for example, or somebody else more altruistic, right? Where they're the easiest ones to teach in political theory class. <laughs> so, but That's I, why they win. But yeah. I think Madison tries very hard to say what what is Republican self-government. It does over the long haul require public spiritedness. But you can't depend on it, and you're going to have times when it's incredibly threatened, and you need to have a lot of these mechanisms that take the stuff of the polity, which is self-interested individuals, for granted and create enough mechanisms to control for them. Let's stay on this and go to our day once again, which is this, and this comes into Gene's area. There were a lot of conservatives, or maybe not a lot, but a few conservatives when Donald Trump it became clear that he was going to win the nomination. Uh, they revolted. And part of the revolt was on this issue, right, that, uh, you know, we've been running around talking about virtue and statesmanship for quite a while now. And this guy does, this guy's the exact opposite of that. That was their argument. And so he's not really a conservative in that sense. And we, having made our position, can't uh, support him. 
And they did that with the expectation that uh, the Republican uh, primary voters felt similar or had bought those arguments in the past. That is, it was an argument about a certain sense of virtue, maybe even more, maybe a Christian Spartan version in some versions, but it was certainly something like that. And the response that came back, including some from some conservatives, was, yeah, don't worry about that. Uh, virtue is not the whole thing. This guy is basically, you know, he's in so he can win. He's not the other candidate. Uh, and if he wins, he's, you know, we can hold him to the abortion decision or we can hold him or the abortion uh, position or we can hold him to, uh, to appoint people to the court that would be good people for the court. So it was kind of instead of think, electing the man who's going to have a lot of discretion and needs to be virtuous is an idea that, well, he's better than the other choice because the other choice is horrible and we can hold him to it. We don't need virtue in him. We can need incentives. We can incentivize him properly, right? Is that correct or am I off track here? I was just thinking of one of uh, Madison's uh, predictions that didn't work out uh, as well as some of the others uh, from Federalist 10, uh, that an extended republic would make it difficult for unworthy candidates to practice with success the vicious arts by which elections are too often carried. Uh, so I, I don't know if that holds true today. Um, so, it, it, you know, uh, Trump as a uh, – uh, as an example, uh, the question is: Trump is an example of uh, someone who does not have uh, what the whatever residuum of uh, Republican virtue Madison uh, envisioned, uh, but is still checked. Uh, I mean, to a certain extent, uh, you know, the things could be a lot worse than they are. Uh, the there you do see. Uh, you, you you do see uh, some serious pushback from various institutions to uh, any attempts that uh, Trump has made to expand the powers of the presidency. I'd say surprisingly there aren't – there haven't been as many attempts as you would expect from the rhetoric. Uh, the rhetoric is, is very imperial. Uh, and very militaristic, uh, and, but the ratio of bark to bite uh, seems a lot higher. But, you know, we just saw the uh, uh, Senate vote to join the House in a resolution of disapproval for the national emergency declaration. Uh, you're not seeing most of the checks come from Congress, though. Uh, to a certain extent, you're seeing them come within the federal bureaucracy itself uh, to another – in another place, you're seeing them come from uh, the judiciary. Uh, and I mean perhaps the judiciary uh, you know, is an example of the Madisonian system work. Another thing that uh, – you know, we were talking a minute ago about the ambition, counteracting ambition and uh, whether – Congress has the incentive to uh, uh, guard its own turf. Uh, it does seem to work out better and more like Madison envisioned when it comes to uh, when you have divided government. Uh, so you see uh, now with the, the Democratic House, you're, you're seeing a lot more uh, investigations. You're seeing uh, you know a lot more. Uh, supervising of uh, the and oversight of the executive branch and the faction which he uh, for good reasons distrusted didn't want to was not happy to see develop even though he played a role in it uh, faction does have this tendency when the alignment is right to make the Madisonian system function in more like the way Madison seems to have envisioned I think divided government is a really key thing to throw into this. Uh, I think one of the reasons we have a democratic Congress is that a lot of people in a lot of swing districts who had Republican representatives, 40 of them, uh, many of those districts voted for Donald Trump, but the people came to conclude he needed a check and they went out two years later and voted for the opposite party just to be a check on, on the power of, of, the, of the presidency. And uh, I, I'm not always in favor of that when it happens because I think it's often done just because of how slow the recovery is or something like that. And it ends up leading toward 
uh, a stasis that makes it very hard for government to do anything. But having said that, I think this last election uh, was clearly a check and balance election. And I think we've seen other ones like that. And when the, the Congress is divided, or at least one of the houses is divided, you see much more of uh, the that branch of the, of the legislature reasserting its prerogatives. There, there's an, a thing here that I think needs to, to be noticed, which is that the, the whole system and its Madison system is hard to operate, as you know, you well know. And it uh, it really requires a consensus. It's not one majority, one election. It's several majorities in several different kinds of districts at different times to get a, a workable government together to get legislation through. So it requires a consensus and a persistence. And in a way, that seems like an act of genius for such a big country. But now you you often read here over the time I've been here at Cato for the last two decades, not just in the last few months, that um, people – you see a lot of – that's called gridlock. It's it's talked about as it, it's a malfunction. It's not – I mean what it does mean is the bet was by the founders that if you can't have that consensus, then you do nothing. It's better to have the consensus than do something with a bare majority. You, but you sense from the culture, maybe just from the media and to some degree from the people, the voters, that they really see it as, you know, it's a, if, if something has a majority, it should be passed. And that's not the way the system's designed. Well, I think there's something in the system that does slow it down even more. And it wasn't in the Constitution. Madison didn't put it in there. And it's not Madisonian. That is the filibuster. And the, and the in addition to the filibuster, the multiple 60-vote points of order that there are in the Senate. Those are all artifacts of the Senate for different reasons at, at different times. Obviously, part of it being civil rights uh, which, uh, and, and, and slavery. But a, a lot of other reasons have led to the multiplication of 60-vote points of order. But now you need a much more difficult consensus than you ever had before. And you're also seeing something in the Electoral College, which was supposed to slow everything down, but it's really a, a ratification of that state's popular vote now. But now we have uh, the Electoral College, which is uh, probably uh, – not as representative of the popular vote as it was for most of the last 150 years. So we've had two elections in this century alone where um, a person who won the popular vote didn't win the electoral college vote. So it may have swung to the point where government is a little harder to find consensus in than it was. And maybe it's not Madison's fault. Um, it's it's something else in the system, especially I think the the filibuster. So I do think there is a problem of when consensus is more or less reached, it's not therefore acted upon. I, uh, as someone who year in and year out more often prefers that nothing gets done, uh, depending on the alignment of political forces. I used to be uh, a fan of the filibuster, but uh, I think it, it also, we've seen in recent years how these extra veto points uh, can lead to more concentration of power in the executive branch. I mean, I think that's exactly what's happened in immigration. Uh, you know, they're they're close to enough votes uh, to pass the Dream Act, then they don't. Uh, and Obama, uh, who had previously said he didn't have the power to to do this by executive fiat, uh, you know, does DACA and DAPA and. Then you get a new president and uh, he tries to overturn it and we're in court over that. Uh, that's really not the way the system is supposed to work. And the in cases like that, the inability to uh, to actually get the, something that you've got essentially a legislative majority for tends to provide the executive branch with incentive to step out on its own and – govern in a way that uh, is not envisioned in our constitution. Mike mentioned the electoral, so-called electoral college, the way we elect the president. Madison uh, thought that he didn't like what you ended up with particularly, but he did endorse it particularly as he got older and he saw it as a sort of way of bringing together two different – it was a mixed uh, form of representation. The states had a role and the popular vote had a role. Uh, and there's other things like that, but that was like that, and the, so the president would be part of that. But you know, now it's very clear. People, a lot of people believe there's a federalism component, but actually the state role is, uh, I mean, because of political parties, because you adopted the rule of winner take all, 
because because of a lot of things, right? Uh, the state role is really formal, but it really doesn't play a role in a you know protecting state prerogatives. I mean that didn't persist over time. American people in a way voted against it. They voted against indirect election of the Senate too, right? So the states have become weaker in that sense. But it's very much against I think what Madison's expectations would have been say even as late as 1830, right? What that the electoral college would be like that. Um, but it also strikes me that you and I have talked about a lot over the years about various things and about Madison. But we never talked about the electoral college and what you think about it, whether you think it serves for liberty enhancing or is it just sort of a chaotic system? I don't have a strong opinion about it. I, I mean, my sense is that it was originally supposed to, uh, you know, serve this uh, saucer that cools sort of function. Uh, you'd get a lot of uh, eminent worthies, you know, to 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 pick the, the you know the, the but uh, very early on as i recall uh, you know it, the the choice of electors uh becomes democratized and uh uh you know it, it doesn't and, and certainly presidential selection uh starts to evolve very quickly away from the the way that uh, the framers thought it would um and uh so i I don't really have strong feelings about it one way or the other, although if it does turn out that uh, we do see increasing increasing numbers of presidential elections as we seem to have been uh, where the popular vote and the electoral college are at odds, uh, that seems uh, like something that is going to give us quite a bit of trouble. So as we draw near the end here, I wanted to discuss something that's a little less pleasant about Madison and as we hear at his birthday. But I think it's interesting to me and interesting – I've thought about it often, which is the question of slavery. Now, Madison owned slaves and so on. But I want to start with another uh, – everyone knows that and that was a shameful fact. But – Madison says in Federalist in the Federalist Papers, he's at one point near the end of one of them, he sort of says, people come up to you and say, well, and you, clearly this had happened to him, right? And they say to you, why is it that you still got, why did you keep the uh, slave trade alive for another 20 years? Why didn't you just get rid of it, right? Right now in 1789. And he gives his answer. He says, the answer basically is, well, we would have, but it actually was the best we could do. And by what he meant by that, uh, the, again, the circumstances, that there were states who were willing to uh, bust up any kind of unionizing attempt, any kind of union or the constitution itself. They would withdraw from it, and South Carolina being the leading state here. And in essence, we chose that we, they had a veto on us and we chose to – we got – we negotiated these constraints on it. They couldn't have it for in perpetuity. But that's that's what happened. It was a deal. So this is Madison, the deal maker, justifying the deal. The next alternative is a really bad uh, alternative apparently that the union doesn't exist. So that's Is that one. a really bad alternative? That's the question. That's one question, I think. Did they make the wrong deal? They clearly – that's Madison's justification. He clearly believed it. But was it the uh, – did they just delay what would have happened earlier? By, in retrospect, we know what happened. They had every – you know, one thing Madison might have believed at that point is that slavery was because we're still pre-cotton gen, which re uh, resuscitates and revitalizes slavery as an institution. He could still believe – not totally implausibly, as many people did, that this was an economic institution that would slowly die, right? So you can say that. But there's really a political argument here that does say the union trumps the other. The other is how, you know, this man was a real, at the beginning I talked about his achievements. This man was really a high achievement person. He was part of a lot of things and he came up with interesting ideas. And yet on the question of slavery to the country, he is basically useless for the next uh, – you know, in 1820, 
Jefferson says, alarm bell in the night. They became aware, if not earlier, that slavery threatens everything we've done, right? And for that next 15 years or whatever in his post-presidential years, Madison doesn't come up with ideas that are plausible. Well, I, I, first of all, I think in 1819 uh, when he leaves the presidency, he actually does uh, come up with a series of proposals to stop the expansion of slavery mm -hmm. and hope that it, it swings back. But I think you're right in pointing out the cotton gin is a key moment. And at the time of the founding, Madison, Jefferson, Washington, they all know this is something that's completely at odds with what they've been arguing for. They know it's wrong. We have myriad quotes and discussions of it. There's a heated discussion in in the uh, Continental Congress itself or in the Constitutional Convention itself about this. Luther Martin of Maryland, uh, you know, calls it an odious sin. There, there, and then John Rutledge of South Carolina and others. South Carolina and Georgia really leads the fight. What's interesting about Virginia and Maryland is that the tobacco industry is sort of going down and the, all of a sudden the economics of slavery seems to be less exciting. And so you have the two things happening at once. One, people saying, you know, I'd be better off with just paid wage workers. I, I think it's a bad idea. And then a bunch of other people saying, this is wrong. I had no idea it was wrong. I spent my life taking it for granted. It's completely at odds with the revolution. George Washington make sure that all of his slaves are freed when he dies because it, this is uh, something that's untenable. Jefferson, Madison, they all have debts. So they even when they know it's wrong in their personal lives, they sell slaves in order to get money. I mean, it's really tawdry and disgraceful. But he has a very close relationship with a couple of slaves and he gives them a lot of authority on his plantation and he treats them similar to white overseers. So these, he, and he knows they're human beings. And that's, that's a critical point. Uh, and, and when he discusses the three-fifths rule, he talks about them, well, it's because they are human beings, but they're also, they're like property, but they're not like property that's inanimate or animals. So, so he knows this is completely and totally wrong, but it's the deal. The three-fifths rule is the deal. He, they can't get a union, uh, they think. There are people who believe that uh, the slave, the uh, Indian Wars were so difficult on South Carolina and Georgia borders that they could have gotten South Carolina and Georgia to come along. But I think it's an open question, Gene. Would have been better? We would have had 13 fractious, you know, nation states at each other's throats. And uh, uh, who knows? They wouldn't, it wouldn't have gotten rid of slavery in the South. So, uh, and, and even remember, there was slavery in the North. Mm -hmm. So uh, the other thing about Madison is he's very attracted to the idea of gradually moving toward emancipation and then exporting a lot of people to Africa. Yes. And African yeah, colonization. Yeah, the, the yes. African yep. colonization movement. He is. And so uh, this, is a, uh, this, is, this is the American original sin. It's a nightmare. Uh, I, one last thing I think worth talking about, the Sean Wilentz has a whole book on this subject just came out. Uh, he's very, he works very hard to make sure there's no phrase in the Constitution that legitimates property in man. Mm -hmm. So he talks about people who are in labor uh, relationships or periods of servitude or whatever so that it could could include a variety of different of uh, you know indentured servitude or, or slavery but he doesn't talk about property in man and that becomes important for later generations to hold on to as they the abolition movement fights uh, slavery. But I think your point is a good one and about Madison and uh, you know obviously uh, we he didn't uh, act as we wish he didn't come up with any great ideas. But to me, part of the story of America is Dred Scott versus Sanford. Uh, Chief Justice Taney in there ascribes a number of different points of view about slaves and about slavery to the founding generation because he's sort of interpreting the Constitution. And basically one of the claims is that the founders uh, thought these people were animals that had no more claim to rights than anyone. They, they had no rights you had to respect in that infamous phrase. And if we see Madison as you've described and I think that's correct, that's – it's not great but it is – Tony is wrong about it. It's wrong about the father of the constitution, right? Well, there is a fugitive slave clause in the Constitution and there's a fugitive slave act that passed in 1850, I think. You, you guys would know better than, than I. It's not my area. And 
Tony, but Tony's rhetoric is disgraceful. Yes. And, uh, shocking, yes to, shocking to the current students. And he's the nation's first Catholic justice, so it's really very sad in that regard. A great hero in Maryland because of that, which was a Catholic colony. But uh, it's, it's really quite disgraceful. His rhetoric went way beyond the reality. And I, I guess it's just simply fair to say that the founders were not monolithic on this subject, and it wasn't just divided north and south. And there was a real opening for an abolition movement at the time of the revolution before the cotton gin. Once the cotton gin comes into place, the value of slavery is too great. And the states that from where it's no value, the sale of their slaves, their in, of their enslaved people, right? These are human beings that are enslaved and they're treated like commodities. And it's a, it's a terrible, a terrible stain on our society. And the cotton gin changes the it takes the interest uh, part out of the equation, changes it dramatically. So they miss the opportunity. So let's finish up with one last question. So it's 268 years ago he was born, and uh, his birthday is uh, here in March. Do we, uh, each of you, do we appreciate Madison enough, or is he a founder that is overlooked too often? Do we, you know, we're doing a our part here with a podcast, but do you think uh, he has enough attention, enough fame now? Gene? Well, he doesn't have his own Broadway musical. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, he got the know, library he, too. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I think uh, Madison uh, gets uh, a, lo a lot of well-deserved uh, attention. Uh, he needs somebody uh, uh, that we devote a lot of thought to. Um I think, uh, you know, we should also be uh, – feel free to criticize his handiwork. Uh, too often people, uh, I think, it, you know, he's that line, uh, is it in Federalist 10? I can't remember about uh, veneration, you know, blind veneration of antiquity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, I, I think uh, sometimes we put him on a pedestal and we uh, uh, take for granted that uh, our Constitution is working as it should, and everything about it was a brilliant design. Uh, and I think there are reasons to, to question that, and not to add a note of negativity on Madison's birthday. Uh, to end on a positive note, uh, I did uh, say that he he wasn't a terrific president. Uh, there's at least one exception to that. Uh, he, uh, in the midst of a war that uh, – you know, is on American soil that involves the burning of the White House, the Capitol, uh, you know, much of Washington, D.C. Uh, the historical record of him violating civil liberties, uh, is his record is pretty clean as far as that goes. There's a, um, there were a number of cases. This comes up, this came up in uh, some of our enemy combatant cases. Uh, this is in uh, one of Justice, Justice Scalia's opinions, uh, dissenting in the Hamdi case about uh, you know the, the, whether you can hold an American citizen as an enemy combatant. And Scalia says you you know you can't. This is the this is the worst power an executive can can have. Uh, and uh, one of the things he cites is some work that's been done recently by uh, I think a Vanderbilt uh, law professor about uh, the article is called James Madison's Forgotten War. And she talks about how uh, you know, there are a number of cases where uh, in, in one particular case, uh, the military arrested a U.S. citizen at, suspected of uh, feeding information to the British. And a New York judge said, you can't hold them. On the, you know, you, the military has no power to... Uh, to hold the citizen as a traitor, uh, they order him released, and Madison follows the order. Uh, so for a war that, uh, you know, we probably shouldn't have fought, uh, and that was – provided every incentive for a massive crackdown on civil liberties, uh, Madison comes out of that record pretty – comes out of that experience pretty clean. Uh, for someone who wrote the two greatest Federalist Papers, who didn't venerate them, by the way, later when he talks about what American texts should be studied in colleges, this is like 15 years later, he 
says the declaration. He lists a whole lot of other things. He says, and the Federalists are worthwhile looking at as well, although they're not always correct. So he's he doesn't venerate them. He, 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 he and and a person who is the father of the in many ways the father of the Bill of Rights, and who and I think this is a really important point that Gene's made. Who who as president tried to live as close to the values of republicanism as he could and still administer the war, execute the war, even at a time when it was failing. That's a pretty doggone good legacy to live on. And for all of his faults, he was uh, a giant of the founding generation. And for all of the founding generation's fault, they have served us uh, in mostly uh, well, obviously slavery and, yeah. and the extermination of Indians is the two huge, massive stains. But they left us with something really to build for us and for the world. I'm going to agree with that, but I'm going to say, you know, the best way to venerate Madison, I think, we don't do enough, which is to take a Madisonian way of approaching politics, institutions, the Constitution, and all of our disagreements. I mean, when you think about Madison, what is he? He's he's trying to he's concrete, he's practical minded, he he's aware that theory matters, but he's also you know, he doesn't want to let that get out of hand. He knows there are disagreements, but he's also got the idea that the problem is you've got to make this thing stable. He's aware of the fragility of democracy and republicanism in a way that we just completely take for granted. I think, you know, buildings and all of this stuff are something Washington lives on, Washington, D.C., but I'd like to see a much more Madisonian approach to things, more Madisonians out there who have different views about various things, but that kind of concreteness and uh, approach, his, and also historically informed, right? He reads history the whole, the three years before the convention. Uh, we've lost some of that, We're, and some of that's an abstract, the sort of deep uh, disagreements that uh, we've read about all the time. These things are caused by uh, a lack of a Madisonian spirit, I would think. Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.